Open up to Psalm 120, if you have your word. We hear this morning, it says, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of God. We are in Psalms 120. You can look at your handout or you can open your Bibles to Psalm 120. The version I use when I'm preaching and teaching is from the NIV, but anyone will work. So, I introduced to you last week uh, what we're going to be doing for the next 15 weeks. And that is starting with the 120th Psalm, working our way through the 134th Psalm. And I didn't just pick these by chance. In my study of, during my time in July, in my prayer time, uh, I came across the Sharei Hamalath, which is what it's called in the Hebrew, the Psalms of Ascent. And these were songs that were sung three times a year minimally by the Hebrews, by the Jews, as they made their way from wherever they lived up to the city of Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. In the spring, it was the Feast of Passover. In the summer, it was the Feast of Pentecost. And in the fall, it was the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacle. And they would sing these, and a lot of the historians would said they would actually sing these in order. And as we make our way through these in the next several weeks, you'll see that there's an order to them. Beginning today with the 120th Psalm, which would be the psalm that would get them out of their homes and out of their villages and get them on the pilgrim's road to the city of Zion, to Jerusalem. And so as you hear this and we contemplate, I pray, the wisdom of our Hebrew brothers and sisters that year after year, century after century, they would sing these songs to remind themselves that they were a saved people, as we looked at last week, a covenant people in a relationship with God, and a blessed people. And they would sing these songs and say, this is who we are. God is real. We're real. This is our relationship with Him. Hmm? That as we go through these songs we would see the same thing and we would hear the same truths and we would have these psalms shape us because that's why they would sing them. They wouldn't just sing them because they felt like singing. There were secular songs then too. They were singing to be shaped by the music. And so as, we, as I proclaim this to you and as we meditate and throughout the week as you say, have them shape you too. Have them shape you as a people set apart by God. Can we start with that this morning? You ready? One, one Psalm 120, ready? I'm going to sing it to you solo. You ready? Don't run. Why do you laugh? Why do you laugh? Do you think I can't do that? <laughs> you laugh because you know exactly how it would sound. <laughs> really bad. You said you shouldn't have done communion before you do that. All right. Uh, three things I want you to see. Three movements by the psalmist in his life this morning. Just three. One, his dissatisfaction with this world. He became completely dissatisfied with the world and cried for another way. Second thing I want you to see is the divine illumination by God where God came in and showed him there is another way. There's another path. And then thirdly, the intentional movement by the psalmist. Okay, so the, the dissatisfaction with this world, the illumination necessary from God, and the complete necessity of the believer moving. Point number one. First, the necessary dissatisfaction. For many of you, I don't even have to belabor this point because I hear it from you and you're right in what you say. That this place at times is a really hard place to live. That we're not, we don't live in a culture that's filled with truth and virtue. We, we hear lies all the time. We suffer in, in the midst of darkness at work, darkness in our homes, even darkness that makes its way into the church. And from a very early age, we are taught to, to trust no one, right? And you said, you know, you can't believe what people say. Uh, you you got to make sure that you take care of yourself because no one else is going to watch out for you. So you watch out for yourself, number one, right? And as truthful as some of these statements are and as hard as they are, the psalmist makes it clear that this is a necessary preparation for the believer to say, you know what, I'm tired of this world. I'm fed up with it. I'm fed up with how fallen man treats fallen man. As Karl Marx would say, it's a necessary evil. And it is very much a necessary evil that moves the believer to say, enough is enough. Thoroughly dissatisfied 
When you become thoroughly dissatisfied with the ways of the world and the wisdom of the world, then you will move. But not until then. Until you say, you know what? The believer coming to a saving grace must say, you know what? I've stopped putting my hope in elections. Thinking that the new politician will come into office and offer me for the first time peace and justice in this broken place. The believer will stop looking and saying, you know what? The next scientific breakthrough, it will solve it. It will cure the diseases. It will heal the environment. It will make things well. you got to stop. When you stop believing that the next pay raise or the next bonus will eliminate the anxiety in your life and make you secure, the believer coming to a saving grace in Christ has to say, you know what? The ways of the world, the lies of the world, I'm tired of it. I'm fed up with it. No more. I can't live like this. In fact, the 120th Psalm is this person communicating that truth. They're in pain. It's a song of anguish. They're actually crippled in pain over the way things are. Look, look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, I cry on the Lord in my distress. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Too long, verse 6, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for, for war. This is not just some solitary cry out to God, you know, one evening. It's not this, this trite editorial in a local paper. This, in the Hebrew, this man is doubled over in anguish. He's writhing in pain over the world in which he lives. And he's saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live amongst a people like this. I'm done. And he's realizing that there's, there's got to be another way. There has to be another path, another journey. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And it's not, so I've got to be careful here, it's not escapism. He's not saying, take me out of the world. What he's saying is, transform me so that I might live as your son, as your daughter, in the midst of the chaos. Don't, don't pull me out. Change me in the midst of it. Each of the 15 psalms that we'll look at gives us a, a characteristic of the life of a pilgrim, of a believer. But this first psalm, the one, 120th psalm, the best word I could give you is prod. It's a prod. It's a nudge. It's a push. It's a kick in the rear to get you out of the house and on the pilgrim's path. Because what it does is it's not, I mean, when, if we were to sing this song, I imagine, you know, the music you'd put to it, it would be more like a funeral dirge because it's not, it's not a, a happy song. You know, it's not a song that's to lift you up. It's not a song that you would play at your wedding. It wouldn't be your first dance song. Okay. It is honest. It is brutal. It is harsh. And it's a song that says, listen, this is life in the fallen world. We're seeing it clearly. I'm surrounded by liars. I'm surrounded by people who are deceitful. I'm myself. I cannot stand. I see broken relationships. I see hatred. I see violence. I see war. No more. And we hear that, and it's that shaking from the beginning to the end. It starts with distress. It ends with war. And what it's saying is, look, when sin made its way into the world, man was set against man, woman against woman, child against parent. Marriages broken, families broken, communities broken. We see it again and again. Right relationships that we want to have, that we think we should have. Healthy relationships, they're so far and few between, outside and inside the church. We manage to turn every community into a sect of elitists. We manage to take every enterprise that's fruitful and turn it into a competition that leads to greed, that leads to War, And that's what he's saying. Enough is enough. And the very fact that he would cry out for another way reveals that there's another way. I mean, why is it that we complain? Because we know in our, in the, our heart of hearts, we know there has to be something better. That we were made for something better. That this can't be it. This can't be the way that we are supposed to be. And supposed to relate. And supposed to engage with one another. So here, I'm going to give kudos to those who are frequent complainers, and you complain, listen, this is your one time, so take it. Because we're not supposed to be people who complain all the time. But for those of you who complain, when you complain, you're saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. Marriages aren't supposed to be falling apart. Our school systems aren't supposed to fail. We're not supposed to be in massive debt. This is not right. We're not supposed to be going to war all the time. Something's broken. Something's wrong. And when you complain about that, you are recognizing another way, a better way, a right way. 
And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. Deep down, he gets it. Deep down, we all get it. But what's so difficult is there, there's no confirmation of this other way that's given to us by the world. In fact, there's no confirmation in our personal experiences apart from God revealing it to us. We know there's something wrong, but we don't know the right way to go until God says, this is the right way to go. Look at verse 7. He says, I'm a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I want to have peace, but everybody wants to war. Constant battling, constant strife, constant violence. The distress that begins and ends the song is the painful awakening. Listen, and everybody can identify with this. The unavoidable reality that we've been lied to our entire lives. In this time, in this culture, from the time that you were very young, you have heard things that don't match reality. And the psalmist gets the crisis point. I mean, you've been told what? That human beings are generally good. There are just a few that are bad, right? You've been, te- you've been told that we are always moving in the right direction and things are always getting better. And if we just hang on a little bit longer, then we're going to make that turn. We're going to come over the hump and things are going to get better. I mean, we've heard this since we were kids. That next, that next president will set things right, right? That next discovery, we just got to put more money into R&D. It'll make things right. And we keep waiting, we keep waiting. We were told that we're all born equal, that we're all innocent at birth, right? That we're all free at birth, that human beings are generally good, that the world is a, is a harmless, good place. And if there's anything wrong with it, well, it's, it's your parents. They're the ones, right? Or it's the economy, right? Or it's the social structure. We blame everything. And therefore, we say, well, if it's our parents, then we'll fix our parents. If it's the economy, we'll fix the economy. If it's our politicians, we'll get new politicians. And so we seek remedies for a problem that's been wrongly identified. Believing this and continuing to believe this shows you how deep and deceptive the sin is. No one can dislodge the spell of this lie. No one. We tried it for centuries to speak truth to this. But again and again and again, we come back to this idea that I'm good. People are good. The world's good. There is a few things that we got to make right. As soon as we make them right, then we'll have our utopian state. We keep expecting things to get better somehow, some way. Where do you think the term fatally optimistic came from? It's this perception. It's buying into this lie. When things don't go your way, for those of you who buy into it, you know, the, the bonus that you used to get all the time at Christmas time goes away. The relationship you spent your life building dissolves. You find yourself, you know, listening to the promises of politicians that never materialize. When that happens, you go right back down into, yeah, I'll be polite here. We become like whining, you know, children kicking and screaming after dinner who did not get their dessert, and we go off to our room. But it doesn't end there. The whining turns to resentment because we expect, we think that we're entitled to this, that we should be living like this, and it's not right. So the resentment turns to anger, and if the anger unchecked turns to violence, the violence turns to what the psalmist says, war. I want peace, but everybody else wants war. It doesn't end with just a whining and kicking and screaming going to our room. Now, as as middle-class Americans, what do we do? We try to escape it, right? So we go on vacation, we get a massage, we go eat, go out to dinner, we buy ourselves a new pair of shoes. I mean, whatever it is that you do, you try to sue this. And we go away for a period of time thinking, I was treated unfairly, this is not how it's supposed to be, and we go away, we satisfy, and we come back with a renewed sense of of naivete that now things are going to be better. Until what? Until your boss is not treating you properly. Until the stock market does not stabilize. Until you realize your kids still aren't listening to what you're saying. And then you go right back into that resentment and anger again and again. Surprised, perpetual state of shock in the world at how things are. Why is that? Because we believe the lie that it's supposed to be getting better. That life is getting better. People are getting better. We're becoming more humane. We're becoming more loving and more compassionate. This lie, I'm going to tell you, that everything is okay and everything is getting better, that lie is born straight from the pit of hell. Okay, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Because what it does is it tries to disguise reality. Who we really are, who God is, the fact that we're fallen creatures. It puts a disguise in everything. It casts the blame everywhere else except the human heart. And then what do we do? When we cast the blame, we run around, we find those people that we can demonize and just we just gotta get rid of them. We can get rid of them, the world will be great. 
instead of looking at ourselves. The lie disguises the violence and it creates easy remedies that never remedy anything. Now the Christian consciousness, listen. You becoming acutely aware that God is a holy God. And that you are a fallen creature, desperately wicked. And that you absolutely need a savior. We need a savior to redeem ourselves and to redeem mankind from this fallen state. That consciousness comes, the beginning of it starts right here with a painful realization that for the majority of our lives, we have been lied to by, by our teachers, by our politicians, by our parents, by our friends. I mean, how many people in your life have told you that you're good? You just did something wrong. How many people? How many believers have told you how good you are, but you just made a mistake here and there? Or that really humanity is good, we just got a little off track. That in our heart of hearts, we're good, kind, compassionate, loving, other-centered people. My entire time in public schools, that's all I heard. And then we would identify those problems, and we were never the problems. It was never us. This realization of the lie, it leads to immediate prayer. Right? When you see it and you go, this is terrible. I've been lied to. This is not the place I want to be. Look at verse 2. The psalmist says, save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Save me. Because I can't get out. I don't know the way out. But I see what's real. And I need you to save me. And so immediately it turns to prayer. And it's a prayer of salvation. And what the psalmist is saying, if he were saying this today, he would say, save me from the advertisers today who tell me what I need and tell me what I want and then offer it to me for $19.99 plus shipping and handling. Save me from those people. You laugh because you know the commercials of which I speak that you think this will change my life. If I just have this product, it'll change my life. And if I buy it now, they give me a second one for free. Save me from the entertainers who promise me cheap joy. Save me from the politicians who want to instruct me on power and morality. The psalmist would say, save me from the psychologist who says he can fix me, my behavior and my cognition, and give me a happy, functional life because I'm dysfunctional now. Save me from the spiritualists who promote my emotion and my experience over truth and God. Save me from the moralists who want to make me into someone who is the captain of my own soul, the master of my own destiny. Save me from the pastors. Hmm? who neglect the word of God, who neglect Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace and sin and hell and tickle my ears to fill their churches. He says, save me from those. And then he says, save me from myself. Save me from the lies that I tell myself again and again that I'm good enough, that I'm smart enough, that I'm strong enough to make it on my own. Save me from the lie that I tell myself that I can save myself and show me the truth that I need a savior. This is the psalmist's cry. Now, some of you, some of you I don't know that well, you may be saying, come on, this is extreme. It's not that bad. I mean, the world doesn't lie to us about everything. And you know what? That's a true statement. In fact, much of what the world tells us factually is spot on. There aren't errors. You say, oh, then I got you, pastor. You're lying. No, listen. We must not be fooled at that which we see that is true that lacks the whole picture, which then turns it into a lie. How so? The world will tell me who I am and what my purpose is without telling me my origin or my destiny. They'll tell me, this is who you are, this is what your purpose is, but they won't tell me where I came from, they won't tell me where I'm going. Now I ask you, how do you know who you are and your purpose if you don't know where you came from where you're going? How? The world will tell me in great detail about the world about animals, about people, about plants, in great detail. You've watched the Discovery Channel, haven't you? And they're not lying to you, but what? They leave out the Creator. They leave out the one who made it all. The world tells us about our own bodies in fantastic detail without telling us that we are made in the image of God and we are the, we're, we're the Holy Spirit, the temple where the Holy Spirit's to reside. The world attempts, somewhat hysterically, to instruct us on love but they don't tell us that God is love. And the only reason we love is because God loves us first. They leave all that out. So be very shrewd here. The facts don't reveal the truth necessarily. Okay? Okay, so the first thing. 
Are you still with me? The first thing, the first point, is that to step out of the house and to get on the path that leads to Jerusalem, you have to be dissatisfied with the ways and the wisdom of the world. And you have to see that much of it you've been lied to. You've got to start there. Or you're going to constantly go back to the politicians and the doctors saying, fix me, fix me, fix me, instead of turning to God. So first thing, dissatisfaction of the world. Second thing, a divine illumination. You need to see something, right? We have a real problem. We can identify that something's wrong quite easily. You don't have to be saved to do that. But we cannot see the right way. Right? Mankind is so desperately fallen. We are so dead in our sins and trap. We can't see the right path. You, you don't say, oh, the world's corrupt, and then turn and go, there's the right way. Do you remember, remember in John chapter 3? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Remember in the middle of the night, Nicodemus comes out to him. He says, oh, Rabbi, I've got to talk to you. And he's talking about being born again. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, verily, verily, truthfully, I say to you, a man cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the path unless what? Unless he's born again. Can't see it. He doesn't say you can't enter. He says you can't even get a glimpse. You can't see a path of righteousness unless God himself shows you through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means until God says, look, you get that the world is screwed up, but here's the right way. You're not going to see the right way. And what happens in this psalm, the word God, Yahweh, in verse 1 and 2, God comes crashing back into this man's consciousness. And it changes everything. Because as soon as God becomes the ultimate reality in your life, now you see, he fills the horizon. You see everything through him. You hear everything through him. And all the lies now are subject to the eternal truth, who is God himself. And everything changes. His name, God's name, when it says in verse 1 and 2, I call on the Lord, Yahweh, verse, uh, verse 1. Verse 2, save me, O Lord. When his name comes crashing into your life, then, and only then, is the path made clear. That there is another way. You knew it, but you didn't know what it was. You knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the way everything is in this broken world, but you didn't know the right way until God came and showed it to you. When God came and said, listen, here's the truth of it. I'm the creator of all that is seen and unseen. I know what you saw on PBS. I know what you saw on Nova. And I'm telling you, I made it all. Okay? And he says, not only that, but I made you in my own image. I know that you think of all those other ways that you came about, but I made you in my image. And I made the person sitting next to you, and I made the person who you work with, and I made your next-door neighbor, and I made you for a distinct purpose, and that was to know me, to love me, to worship me, that I could pour my glory out on you, and you would reflect it back to me. So that I did that. Discovery, PBS, they should all be sued for. I mean, that's, that's plagiarism, isn't it? I mean, we have, we have two different stories here. God's story is the right story. He comes to us and he says, listen... The truth is this, that you are wrong about being able to save yourself. The truth is that you're wrong about being able to manage your own life and manage your own marriage and manage your own children. You're wrong. He says, you cannot do it well without me. And he says that truthfully in scripture. And he says, what's wrong with the world is not the fact that we lack this medicine or we lack this politician. He says, what's wrong with the world is you. What's wrong with the world is me. It's us. We are the problem. It's in the human heart that has rejected God as Lord and Savior and King and Sovereign God. The truth is that without a Savior, there is no salvation. There's nothing we can do. The truth is, John 3.16, that God, out of his radical love for mankind, sent the Son to redeem mankind. Right? That's the truth. And so we get that again and again and again. And as soon as the name of God comes in, we see truth and all the lies begin to crumble. The longer you walk with Christ, the more you pursue him, the more you see how many lies you have bought into and still buy into. I mean, how many of us are here still have lies that permeate our thought process and our lives that have yet to be dealt with properly according to the word of God by Christ himself? You cannot see this new path unless God himself shows it to you. The author, John Ballet, he wrote this. He said, I am sure that the bit of the road that most requires to be illuminated is the point where it forks. (laughs) Did you hear that? The point of the road we need most light is where we have to go one direction or the other. 
That makes sense, right? You've got to choose this direction or that direction. Which enables the person who's lost. Which enables the person who's roaming around and stumbling around the darkness to see for the first time the right way. The direction they ought to go. In the tales of the Hasidim, as told by Rabbi Israel Razim, you like that? There's this occurring, recurring theme again and again. I'm just going to read you a portion. A traveler loses his way in the forest. It's dark and he's afraid. Danger lurks behind every tree. A storm shatters the silence. The fool looks the lightning. The wise man at the road that lies illuminated before him. Psalm 120 is the fork in the road. God is the lightning that brings light. The psalmist is saying, this world is wrong. I'm I'm surrounded by liars. I'm just surrounded by people who are deceitful. This is not the right way. God's name comes in. It brings light in the situation. And now we have another path, another way. Two paths, two directions. One that leads to life, the other one to death. One to light, one to darkness. One to this world and its ways with the anger and the hatred and the war and the other that leads to God, where there is joy and there is love and there is peace. It's this radical transition from a dreamy nostalgia of of really just hoping things are going to get better to a rugged pilgrimage to God. It's this movement from I'm just going to wish and I'm going to hope and I'm going to pray, but not really pray, but just pray that things get better and somehow open my eyes and think they'll get better to becoming a lifelong disciple of Jesus Christ from leaving the town, getting on the road and heading toward Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Those who see the fork and those who move as pilgrims along this path, you know what your name is? You're a Christian. You're a Christian, but you're not a Christian unless you see it, unless you're on the path, unless you've been called by God. No matter what you go through, the Christian is someone who sees this is not right. And God shows them the right way and they say yes and they go. That's the Christian. Hence the name in the book. So first, you must be thoroughly dissatisfied with the ways of this world, the wisdom of the world and the lies. You must see them as lies. Secondly, you must see the path, the new way that God has presented to you. Now, if you're highly skeptical and highly cynical, you'll say, you know what? God has never shown that to me. Well, you know what? Today's your lucky day because he just did. Okay? He just did. He's saying there are two paths. This is from his word. So if your whole life you've never heard this, now you have. Continue listening because there's one more thing you must do. The third point, our last point, is we must move. We must be thoroughly dissatisfied with the world. We must see the new path that God has put before us. And then we must move in it. Intentionally, willfully, consciously. Saying no to the world and yes to God. No to the wisdom of the world and yes to the wisdom of God. Two paths. And this is a renunciation of the lies. You're saying no more. I'm tired of the lies. I don't want to live by the lies. I don't want to hear the lies. I don't want to tell the lies. From now on, I'm going to embrace truth. I'm going to live by truth. I'm going to follow truth. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, the psalmist says, Woe to me. Don't you love the woe to me? A.K.A. in our language, what? I, I can't do this anymore. Woe to me. This is not good to me. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech and that I live amongst the tents of Kedar. Woe to me, I no longer want this life. I no longer want this path. I don't want to be on this broad path that leads to destruction. There's got to be another path. I don't care how narrow it is. I want to put my feet on it and I want to walk it. Meshech and Kedar, what are they? They're place names. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it helps, right? Meshech was a, a tribe far from Palestine, actually in southern Russia, it was a strange place. The people of Meshech were strange people. Okay? Kadar, you probably heard this. They were a Bedouin tribe, hostile savages that actually roamed about the borders of Israel, constantly attacking people coming to and fro. All right? So if I were to paraphrase this, this is the Keith translation of the Living Bible. Ready? It would be, the Psalms is saying this. You ready? Here's my translation. I live in the midst of strangers and wild savages, and I can't take it anymore, and I want out. I don't want to live amongst strangers and wild savages. I want to live amongst people I know. 
who are loving and kind and patient and gracious. I want to be that person and I want that community. The biblical world for saying no to the world, which is what he's saying, and yes to God is, you know this, it's repentance. It's metanoia. A change of mind. A change of direction. Right? I was going this way and now I'm going that way. I used to believe the lies, now I'm going to believe truth. I'm saying no to the ways of the world, I'm saying yes to God. And the believer must do that. It's not sufficient just to be fed up. It's not sufficient just to see the road. You must move and walk along the road. Pilgrims move. They're always going somewhere, right? So we must do that. Repentance. It's always the first word. Everywhere. Remember John the Baptist? Matthew chapter 3 comes out, right? John the Baptist. You got your picture of him in your mind? Okay, good. What is it? First words, public ministry would say, repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn. Away from the world to God. Jesus Christ, next chapter, same thing. First words, public ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter, remember Acts chapter 2? Ends that wonderful sermon in Acts chapter 2. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? He says, repent and be baptized. You get it? What do you have to do? The first step is repentance. Even in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, to the last church, the seventh church, do you remember what it says? Be zealous and repent. So again and again and again, we see this theme, moving away from the world into God, moving away from lies into truth. And you can't start the pilgrimage. That's why this is the first song. That's why 120 is the first one they would sing. Because you can't start the pilgrimage until you repent. Until you turn. Until you say, enough is enough. Now, i got to be careful because when I use that term, repentance, in our culture, we immediately think emotion. Hmm? I, I'm, I'm emotional. Now, there may be great emotion that comes as a result of repentance. But repentance is not a feeling. It's not an emotional state. It's not, in fact, it's not just feeling sorry for something. Repentance is not uh, you being convicted either. You may be convicted and not repent. Biblical repentance is movement. It is a a radical change of direction. It is you consciously and willfully and intelligently stop saying, I'm going to stop going that way and I'm going to go this way. How many of you have been lost before? You've been driving around. All right, let me ask. Ladies, how many of you have been lost to your husband before? And your husband keeps driving because pride fills the, the man's heart, right? And the wife keeps saying, just pull over and ask. Just pull over and ask. I'm not, I don't need to ask. I know where I'm going. This is before GPS, right? Because the lady and things going, turn right. You know, she's telling you. You're going a direction that's not the right direction. If you continue going that direction, you're not just going to show up. Especially if you're going the wrong way. You must stop. You must ask. And you must go the other way. The right way. This movement is realizing fundamentally that you have been going the wrong way. It's becoming humble enough to say, I am totally lost. I don't know where I'm going. It's being humble enough to say, you know what? I've tried my whole life to manage my own life. I've tried to keep everything in order, all the pieces, my schooling, my, my, uh, my career, my marriage. I've tried, and I realize I can't do this. I can't hold it all together. And the more I try, the more it falls apart. Turning away from that and saying to God, all right, you will be my Lord I will be your servant. I will submit to you. You lead me. You direct me. You instruct me. You give me strength. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. Now, that's hard to say. But that's real repentance. When you're fundamentally turning away from the life that you have tried to manage and lord over from the youngest days, right? When we're kids, we get it. That's what we say to our parents. How dare you tell me what time to go to bed? I know it's best for me. No, you don't. We don't. What we think is best apart from God is actually what's worst. Repentance is submitting your life to Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. It's saying, I can't save myself and I can't, Lord, I'm submitting. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop going against Him and I'm going to submit my life to Him. It means that you have to stop thinking. I've been doing this all my life and somehow it's going to change even if I don't do anything differently. Right? I mean, If you keep doing the same old things and you think somehow it's going to change and it doesn't, that's just dumb. I mean, right? 
I don't mean that, but that's not, if you think I'm just going to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, and one day it'll change. It doesn't change. Repentance is turning to God. Lifelong discipleship in Jesus Christ. And saying, you know what? What the world offers me never works. It never works. Because I've tried a lot of them. You've tried a lot of them. I mean, how many of you bought the medication you thought was going to make you feel better? How many of you... <laughs> okay, be careful. Don't raise your hands. Um, how many of you actually... How many of you tried, you know, ladies, how many of you tried that anti-aging cream? And you paid a lot of money for it. And your husband says, what? Right? And you put it on. You know, Do I look younger? And he says, no. Right? And then a fight ensues. You've tried all those things, you know, those, those super ab exercises that will make you, you tried them, and they don't work. And so what do you do? That didn't work. Unless you turn to God, you try the next thing, and the next thing, until what? Until you're 90, and you're still trying them. Now, some of you may be saying, all right, I get it, but this is so hard. I mean, moving away from the direction I've always been going to this new way, this is hard. You're telling me to say no to the ways of the world and yes to Christ? I am telling you that. And I'm not saying it's not without pain. In fact, I would say it's going to be with much pain that you repent. The longer you go in any direction, the harder it is to change direction, even from an early age. For those of you who were not as bright, were, were, were brighter than myself, and well, I'll just say myself, I'm not going to cool Lori in this. And you, if you gave your children babas, you know, little, little uh, you know, right, little sucky things of babas. That's the right name, baba for it, right? Binky, baba. It all sounds bad. Pacifier. Thank you, Kurt. You should be up here, not me. The pacifier. What does it do? He's pacifying them. Hmm? Or you give them the blanket, that little blanket, that they sit there and they rub and they rub. What happens? What happens after a year and a year and a half and two? And you're going, you know what? It's not right for that kid to have that in his mouth walking around the store. It's not right for that kid to take that to his kindergarten class, right? So what does the parent have to do? The parent has to go, the parent has to sneak it away and have to hide it and say, well, you know, where's my baba? Oh, sorry, you know, the baba fairy came and took the baba away. And you've got to create this grand lie. And it's terrible. But if you don't do that, what happens? I mean, imagine dropping your son or daughter off at school their freshman year. And the first night they're in the dorm room, their roommate sees them pull out a baba and a blankie. It'll freak them out. It'll freak out the roommate. It'll freak out the kid, too, because the response is right. They ought not have that. You go on that course long. Just the other day, Lori is, we're, we're moving, unpacking stuff in the garage, trying to get rid of stuff, and she pulled out. All of our children had babas, and all of our children had blankets. That's a whole other sermon on counseling. We can do that later. <laughs> Lori had kept a piece from the blanket. And she, so she goes, Keith, look, Joshy's piece. And Josh goes, hey, what's that? And he goes over. And so he's eight. And he, what, how long did he have it? Until he was three? He grabs it and goes, oh, I remember. You know? And he's, again. Had we said take it, it would have been in his room under his pillow. Something more practical for those of you who are not three months old. In our culture, we train men and women to go to school, to get good grades, go to college, and have a career, right? And so men and women are doing this. They're tracking it. They're going to school. They're getting the degree. They're getting the career. And then they meet someone, and then they get married. And now you have two people that are highly educated and well-trained and both thriving in their careers. And then a baby comes along. That is the right way, by the way, that God says, you know, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. We're supposed to have children. You say, how'd that happen? Well, we're supposed to. And so the baby comes along, and then what? Now... There's crisis because they're going, so who's going to take care of you? No, you. You? What? Husband or wife? Now, you have a choice, right? You can say, we'll put them in daycare for 10 hours a day and have daycare raise them. We can today, what the big thing today is, we'll just send them off to our parents. <laughs> they're old. You know, they're home all day watching Oprah, so let's give them to them, right? Right? Oh, you say, oh, but look, go to the park. And look at the number of grandparents with their grandchildren. Why is that? So I'm going to be careful here. In some circumstances, I know it's necessary. Okay? But in many circumstances, it's not a financial issue. It's an identity issue. Because in our culture, the stay-at-home mom and far be it the stay-at-home dad is not looked at with an identity that the person is an industry. So there's pain. There's identity crisis. And in many cases, there's a financial crisis. If two people are making good money and one has to quit and stay home and raise the child... 
like the Bible says, you're going to suffer financial pain. Pain. The longer we go in a particular direction, this is what takes place. Okay. Um, look, at, look at verses 3 and 4 with me really quickly. Verses 3 and 4. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows and burning coals of the broom tree. The faster you turn away from the ways of the world, turn off that path and turn to the path of righteousness that God lays out, the better. I mean, you got to do it quickly for two reasons. One, the way that God created the universe and natural laws and relational laws, if you go against it, you'll destroy yourself. Not only that, if you go against it, you're going against the living God. You're going against Him. And there will be a response. There will be punishment. In fact, this verse 4, when it says, He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, that's self-explanatory. No one would want to be shot with sharp arrows, right? But burning coals with the broom tree, that, that just sounds kind of weird. So let me explain it to you. The broom tree, uh, the best thing that I could use analogy, it'd be like the juniper trees today or juniper bushes. You know those nasty things that swallow our, our baseballs all the time you can't get back? The broom tree, when you would burn it, they would actually use it as coal base. And it burned longer and it burned hotter than most other woods. Okay? So this judgment by God against the one who says, I refuse to submit, I refuse to recognize you, God. Not only will they receive the warrior's arrows, but they will experience the fire, the burning fire that has no end. As the author in Hebrews said, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. He said, I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is a cry to, to get out. But we know from the history of Israel that they didn't, when they moved back to God, when they took it, they, they weren't, you know, miraculously planted back in the Garden of Eden where they lived this life of innocence, Right? And, and when they made their way to Jerusalem, they didn't hide out in this mystical city. They didn't take on a monastic moment, a movement of being isolated. What they were saying was this, and it's imperative for us because so many Christians still are trying to get out of the world. But what God has done is this. He's redeemed us to be in the world as salt and light, not to escape. You know, if, you, if you're going on vacation to escape, you're going on vacation for the wrong reasons. You know, if you eat or you drink or you buy clothes or you watch television and you're doing it all to get away, to escape, it's the wrong reason. Buy food to enjoy the food. Watch a movie to enjoy the movie. Go on vacation to enjoy vacation, not to get away. Because when you do it to get away, you've got to always come back. And whenever you come back, what? There's that, oh, I'm back. It's Monday. Kids. Ah, uh, you know, it's that constant. You'll always be disappointed again and again and again. What the psalmist is asking for is to be transformed in the midst of the chaos. He's saying, I live amongst the people who lie to me all the time, deceitful people. I want peace, they want war. God, change my heart in such a radical way that I will have peace that transcends all of this. Not escape, but transcending and transforming in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of it all. One author put it like this, better than I, said, It's the truth of God that explained their lives and ought to explain ours. The forgiveness of God that renewed their lives and ought to renew ours. The grace of God that filled their lives and ought to fill ours. And the love of God that blessed their lives and ought to bless ours. This is the pilgrimage that we're called to be on. The same one they were called to be on. The assurance that you're lacking. Because every day you're called to make that conscious, willful decision in Christ to go the right way. Every day. In fact, every moment of every day. You say, uh, how can I be sure that if I go the direction that you tell me, that the Bible says, that if I forsake the ways of the world, if I forsake the lies of the world, and I actually go after truth, how can I be sure that my destruction, my end there won't be destruction? How do I know this? What can I give to you? It's not a sermon, and it's not a program, and it's not a book, and it certainly isn't a pill, and it's not a movie. It's none of those things. It is fundamentally a person. It is foundationally a relationship with that person that will give you the assurance and the strength to step out of your house, to get on the pilgrim's road, and to start walking toward Jerusalem. 
It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. He had a fork in the road 2,000 years ago. We celebrated communion. Same night. He's with his disciples in the upper room. They celebrate communion. He gives this grand teaching. And then he's silver one. He says, come with me. I've got to go pray. And they go out to the garden of Gethsemane. You know this story. And he takes a few with him. He says, I've got to pray. In fact, let me, let me just read to you from Mark. They went to Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. And he prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And what was happening that moment is a reflection of what happens to us every moment of every day. He saw a fork in the road. More at this moment than he had in his entire 33 years of life. He saw this fork. And he saw two paths. And he saw one path that led to God, his Father. It led to the light and to his love and to his glory and to his joy. And then he saw the other path that led to death. It led to hell. Where there was no community. There was darkness. There was the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in the garden, and most Bible scholars agree this, it's when he got the greatest understanding of what was going to transpire in the next several hours. He got it. He's sweating blood. And he has to make a decision, right? He has to. Christ could have said no. He said, your will, Father, not mine. But Christ could have said no. And so what happens? God illuminates these two paths, one to heaven, one to hell, one for life and one for death. The very foundation of your faith, the very assurance that you have every day to say no to the world and yes to God is based upon the decision that Christ made for you. Because the decision that Christ made is so counterintuitive. He saw the two paths and he said yes to hell and no to heaven. He said yes to death and no to life. Now when you first hear that, if you haven't been in the church, you're probably thinking, what? What? All you keep telling me is that Christ is saying Go this way, not that way. Go to God and not to the world. Go to life and not to death. Go to the light. You keep telling me that. So the very things he's telling me to do, he did not do. Exactly. Why? Why? Why did Christ willfully and voluntarily choose death, darkness, and separation from his Father? Why would he do such a radically foolish thing? In light of the fact... Now, be careful here with your theology. He lived a sinless life. He had option B. We don't. He did. He could have said, I'm I'm taking life. I'm going home. I'm going to be with my father. The prayer in the garden reveals that's what he wanted, but he wanted something more. You know that more? Of course you do. That more is you. That more is me. He said, I can't have them unless I go this direction. I can't have them and you at the same time. So he said to the Father, I'm going to forsake you and I'm choosing them. And that's exactly what he did. And so when he said yes to death, when he said yes to hell, when he said yes to the separation with the Father, he did that so that you could have life, so that you could have the Father, all the glory of the Father, all the joy, all the real life, real food, real good movies, real dancing, real life in heaven forever and ever. He said, I'm going this way. And I'm going, to pay, I'm going to pay in full the punishment we rightly deserve. And because my father is a just God, when he pours out all of the punishment you deserve onto me, he will give to you what I rightly deserve. And that is glory, and that's honor, and that's love, and that's my father, and that's the kingdom forever and ever. And it was the great reversal. It was the great exchange, and he did that. He didn't have to, but he did. That's your assurance That has to be the foundation of your faith. In fact, if it doesn't start there, my beloved, then no matter where else you start, whatever you try to hang your repentance on, it won't last. Repentance, turning away from the world and to God, away from the lies and to truth, must be on this turning point in the life of Christ. When he said no to the Father and yes to hell, so you could have the Father and not hell. So that when when his body was broken and his blood was spilled in your place... You can have what he was going to get. 
what he was going to get, but did not. The psalmist says in verse 5, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, and I live among the tents of Kedar. I'm telling you, you don't have to live there any longer. You don't have to be overwhelmed by the world. And I see it so much in the church. Our marriages and our jobs and even relationships, they, they bring us down, they cripple us. We're in Meshach, we're in Kedar. I can't, I can't do it like this. God said, you don't have to. There's another way, a brilliant way, a power-filled way to live in Christ. And it starts with repentance. Repentance sets us on that traveling road to light and life and love and peace and joy. Eugene Peterson, and I'll close with a quote from him, he said, it is a rejection, repentance. It is a rejection that is also an acceptance. It is a leaving that develops into an arriving. It is a no to the world that is a yes to God. If you have not repented and turned away from the world, God is calling you this morning to repent and believe. I will say to you as John the Baptist did, as Jesus did, repent and believe this morning. And if you said, I know Christ, I know him as my Lord and Savior, then repentance should be part of your daily life. That you are daily saying no to the world and yes to God. No to the lies and yes to truth. Every single day. Let's covenant to that end right now. Father, let's pray. Father, we recognize that the world has deceived us, even in our saved state. That how many here this morning think that everything is okay and getting better? That we're all getting better? I pray, Father, that you would, you would break the spell of the lie of this perpetual state of, of uh, goodness and movement. That you instead would give us that understanding. You would be that lightning bolt that would show to us the right road. And then by your power, Lord, that we put our feet on it and we walk. That we would go that direction knowing we cannot see the road by ourselves and we cannot walk of our own accord, but you, being a gracious God, can show us the right direction and move us along that path. I pray that Jesus Christ and his saving grace would be the foundation, would be the assurance that we have to take this road with great confidence and great power. In Christ's holy name, amen.